You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Milestones to the Kingdom of God coming upon the earth. This is the June update for 2022. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by ChristadelphianVideo.org. So this is the third Milestones update for this year, presented by Brother Don Pearce from the Rugby UK Ecclesia, examining the news in relation to Bible prophecy. Each year he does four of these updates and the next one will be in the autumn. Hope you enjoy it. It's uh, more up to date than usual. The way Don now has structured his milestones updates, we we get much sooner updates than we did before, which is a great bonus and a help to all of us watching the signs of the times. So as always, our thanks go to Brother Don for his work on these excellent videos. Incidentally, this is available as a video also over on ChristadelphianVideo.org, or you can just listen to this podcast. Hope you enjoy. God bless. Let's have a look at the situation in Ukraine. Um, What we have to understand, what Putin is doing, is waging a holy war. Because Ukraine is the birthplace of Russia. Not only their birthplace, but the place where their religion began. And so in Russian eyes, Ukraine has a very special place in their hearts. And what Putin is wanting to do is to get control over Ukraine and various other parts of his empire, because when in 1991, the Soviet empire came to an end, Putin regarded that as the biggest catastrophe in their history, losing so much land. And he has steadily been expanding, moving into Georgia and Crimea and a little bit of uh, Ukraine uh, and into Belarus uh, in the effort to expand. And so that's what he wants to do to rebuild the old Holy Russian Empire. So remember, this is a holy war and that explains an awful lot of what is happening. So what are Russia's origins? Well, they're very much tied with Ezekiel 38. We listed there the nations that come against Israel, of which we know that Russia and Europe are the two main antagonists that come against uh, Israel. And listed there are countries which we can, when we go to Genesis chapter 10, which gives us the origin of the nations, it shows how closely linked they are because the vast majority of the people in the Gogian alliance are all from the family of Japheth. So Gog, we're told, is of the land of Magog and Prince of Rosh, which is Tyrus, we're going to see that link in a moment, Meshech and Tubal, and his companions are Persia, the Medes, Media and Persia, uh, Ethiopia, who descended from Shem, 
I'm in Libya again from from Ham. I mean, both Kush and foot from Ham, and then finally Goma and Tagama. So it's interesting to see it's all from one family, Japhethites, no Arabs involved, um, and Kush and foot uh, as being part of that alliance from Ham. So none from Shem, Jews are the object uh, of this invasion. And the other interesting point is that one of the brothers, or one of the sons of uh, Japheth, is Javan in the middle there. And he plays no part uh, in this assembly against Israel. And again, Genesis chapter 10 explains why, because his son is Tarshish. And we understand Tarshish, which in today's terms has, represents Britain, uh, is on the side of Israel, not on the side of those who attack her. That's why Israel, why Britain had to come out of the EU. She's not part of that uh, assembly. So let's see this link with Tyrus, who is Rush or Rosh. And just uh, by way, just in case I forget later on, I'll just put that little note there that sometimes uh, it's spelt with an H. So Josephus and the Septuagint spell Tyrus with an H. Um, we can see if we explored, but we're not going to look at this in any detail. We can see many place names which begin with a T-H-I-R-S or a straightforward Tyrus. So basically, without uh, any ado, we, we can trace the movement of Tyrus, obviously from Ararat, from the, uh, coming off the Ark, uh, and moving eastwards, we find traces of Tyrus in, around Constantinople and into Greece there, uh, up further north into Ukraine and Crimea, uh, further north still, and seems to have ended up at, uh, in uh, Scandinavia. We know that Tarshish, before the time of Solomon, had established himself in uh, Britain. Uh, and so presumably roughly about the same time, Tyrus or his descendants had moved upwards and outwards. They were explorers, they were known as pirates uh, and strong warriors. And I believe that the description we have of them, that they were ruddy and blue-eyed people and worshipped the descendants as Thurus, i.e. Thor, the god of war, links us to the Vikings. And uh, a 6th century BC Greek writer says that Tyrus were the first fair-haired people mentioned in antiquity. So I believe that the Vikings up there are descended from Tyrus. And they spread themselves not only around the region there, but downwards uh, into Ukraine and the region down there. So we jump forward in time. Uh, we're now in the eighth century uh, AD. Uh, and certainly the descendants of uh, Tyrus, we can trace names of rivers, um, and places, Tarasopol, the River Tyras, and showing us that they were in this region here. The other main centre 
which was very much under the Viking control, which I believe, as I say, are descendants of the same Tyrus, was at Nothgorod. And this empire that grew through the amalgamation of these two cities um, became very rich and important because it was on the main route for the Vikings down with their trade down to Constantinople. And it was known as Kievan Rus. Now, Kievan Rus was a long time known, according to Gregor, a Russian historian, as the Scythian or the Taro Scythii. These Taro Scythians call themselves Rus. And we know that Russian history will tell you that they have descended from the Scythians, who I believe is part of the Tyras. So, Rosh or Ross or Rus are all ancient names for Russia, says the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, and we can see if we just take, knock off the TI of Tyrus, we can see where the Rus uh, has its origins. So we go to 882 when the Prince of Novgorod and Kiev had come together. Uh, and form this uh, empire, as it were. And his son, Grand Prince Igor, is the one that the Soviet historians looked upon uh, as the true beginning of the, prince, the Russian princely line. This is a book written in the time of the Soviets. Now, it was his grandson, Vladimir, same name as the present ruler. Um, he was the one that conquered Crimea. And he was uh, a great explorer of all things and examined the religions of the peoples of the day. Uh, went to Constantinople to look at the Orthodox religion, went to uh, Jerusalem to see the Jewish religions, uh, went to the Vatican to see the um, Roman Catholic religions. And they decided that the uh, one that suited them most was the Orthodox. And so uh, Vladimir goes to Constantinople, uh, speaks to the uh, Byzantine Empire there, and in exchange for having the Byzantine Empire sister for his wife, agreed not only to be baptised into the Orthodox religion, but to go home and baptise all his uh, in, um, citizens. So that's what happened. Um, history later on, the Mongols swept in from the east uh, and drove the uh, people of Kiev northwards. Uh, the, the whole of Crimea was taken and Ukraine was taken by the Mongols and they were driven northwards. And that pushed the church and the religion and the country, the Russians, to move upwards, uh, fleeing northwards. And eventually in 1462, they established themselves in Moscow and that became the center of the Russian empire and the Russian church. And it wasn't until 1654 that Crimea, which had been taken by the Mongols, was eventually reunited with the Russian empire. And that has an importance to us in what is happening today. Because uh, 
to mark the 300th anniversary of the coming together uh, in 1954, so in the time of the Soviets, Khrushchev was the Russian leader, and he decided that uh, as a token gift, he would uh, give Crimea, which was under the Soviet control, as a gift to the Ukrainians. Didn't mean a lot because they were all under Soviet control, but it was a token gesture. Little did he know, that was 1954, that less than 40 years later, the Soviet Empire would fall and Ukraine would gain independence. And Russia, which was using Crimea for her Black Sea Navy, then had to pay Crimea for using all the naval facilities, which was not a thing that uh, was pleasing to Putin when he became uh, the president of the Russian uh, empire. So when in 2014 Russia invaded Crimea and took it, then Putin had built in Moscow close to the Kremlin, close to the main church that he had erected, uh, a statue to Vladimir the Great the one that had brought this uh, orthodox religion to Crimea and Ukraine and eventually to Russia. And so this was unveiled in November 2016. There's Putin giving his speech uh, where he emphasizes that Kievan Rush under Vladimir the Great was the birthplace of Russia and her religion. And he says, this new monument is a tribute to, of respect to our distinguished ancestor, an especially revered saint, statesman and warrior, and spiritual founder of the Russian state. Prince Vladimir created the foundation of a strong, united, centralized state, thus incorporating various peoples, tongues, cultures and religions into one great family. His era knew many achievements, the most important and pivotal of them, being the baptism of Russ. This choice became the common spiritual fountain for the peoples of Russia, Belarus and Ukraine and laid the foundation of moral values which define our lives even till now. And so he appeals to the moral standing and that, that Ukraine uh, bequeathed to them and this power and greatness that it brought. And today our duty is to stand together against modern challenges and threats, leaning on our spiritual precepts to move forward, ensuring the continuity of our 1000 year history. So that's his viewpoint. This is an important place. It must be under our control. And we probably remember last year that uh, Putin wrote a paper, an essay, on the historical unity of the Russians and the Ukrainians. And in one part of that, he says that uh, Russia was robbed when in 1991, the Soviet fell and she lost control of the Ukraine. And he says, I'm becoming more and more convinced of this. Kiev simply does not need Donbass. That's the area that they annexed at the same time as taking Crimea. 
and he ends his uh, talk by, or not talk, uh, writing, by appearing to suggest that Ukrainian statehood itself ultimately depends on Moscow's consent, saying, I am confident that true sovereignty of Ukraine is possible only in partnership with Russia. So we can see where he is coming from in his invasion this year. It is desiring to bring back Ukraine under the sovereignty of Russia because this is our birthplace. And Adrian Hilton, some of you will remember his book on principalities and powers of Europe. Um, he had this interesting observation that it is religion that is driving all this. When Putin refers to the spiritual security of Russia and refers to Ukraine as an inalienable part of Russian history, culture and spiritual space, that spiritual security and spiritual space resides in the Moscow Patriarch, that's the church. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church is schismatic. Many of them have broken away and must be brought back into the fold of Russian orthodoxy. It is God's will. Without control over Ukraine, the Moscow Patriarch wouldn't be the biggest orthodox church, and the Russian church would lose the basis of its vision to be the centre of world orthodoxy. So without Ukraine, the Soviet Union was no longer a superpower. So it has been very important to regain control of Ukraine, get the church back under her wings which she hasn't succeeded in doing. In fact, uh, the very opposite of that. And as Kirill put it um, beginning of this year, Ukraine is not on the periphery of our church. We call Kiev the mother of all Russian cities. For us, Kiev is what Jerusalem is to many. Russian Orthodoxy began there. So under no circumstances can we abandon this historical and spiritual relationship. The whole unity of our local church is based on these spiritual ties. So we can see how Russian church and state are united. We've got to enlarge the empire, bring back these countries which have gained their independence and have control over them. Well, as I say, the... Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine is so dismayed at what is happening that they are breaking away. Most of the uh, members have broken away from their association with the Russian Orthodox Church uh, and are wanting independence. So, in fact, the Russian Orthodox Church membership is hemorrhaging over this invasion of Putin. It wasn't what Putin intended at all. What is very interesting is to look at the divisions between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Great Schism took place in 1054. Before that, there was complete unity between the East and the West. But in 1054, there was this division. And when we note where the dividing line is, and we'll come back to this line, we can see that there are a lot of countries which at the moment are either in the EU or seeking to be part of the EU, which from our understanding of Nebuchadnezzar's image and its two feet are in the wrong foot. They've got to be pulled into the Eastern foot. 
Uh, and what we're seeing is part of this process, which will bring nations into the Eastern foot. Now, the Pope has been very keen to promote unity, to bring together this uh, healing of this 1054 schism, um, bring the Roman Catholic and the Russian Orthodox churches back together again. The Roman Catholic Church is by far the bigger, um, and as I say, the Russian Orthodox Church is badly hemorrhaging. So it may be very interesting that this could be the opportunity that the Pope has to seize his opportunity to um, take control of the Russian Orthodox Church. We know how he met in Cuba in 2014, 16, was it? Um, and he is planned to meet with Kirill in, uh, as a meeting in Kazakh, um, on the sidelines of this meeting anyway. So that will be the first meeting since that meeting in Cuba. And uh, there are a lot of rumors that the Pope is about to resign, so it might be a successor that meets, but we shall see. Things are, are very interesting on that score. And the other thing we have to remember is that the Putin uh, has many times, six times uh, in during his uh, premiership, been to the Vatican. Met with John Paul II in 2000, 2003, with Benedict in 2007, and with Francis in 2013 and 15 and 19. And his visits are always much longer than most heads of states. Uh, and so one can see that behind the scenes, they have been working together. We know from scripture that there has to be cooperation between Europe and Russia. Um, and the groundwork is being laid. Um, Putin and Pope have a similar outlook. They want to have strong churches and control just as Russia has in Russia with working with the church. So the Pope wants in Europe to have a partnership, a rebuilding of the Holy Roman Empire. And that's from scripture is what we expect. And so the Pope has trodden a very tenuous line, hasn't he, over this invasion, been very careful not to upset Russia. In fact, his masterstroke was after uh, a month of fighting, he called together all the um, Roman Catholic leaders from around the world, they didn't call them together, but said in your own countries, uh, at uh, the nearest to the six o'clock on the 25th of March, you are to dedicate Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Now, Mary will be appalled when she comes to life at what has been done in her name, but this is the one thing that unites Roman Catholic and Russian Orthodox, this worship of Mary. And so that was a masterstroke to indicate his sympathy with what Putin was doing. So we, this is uh, on 31st of March after five weeks, where Russia had successfully began to move in on the north and on the east and the south. But since that time, all the lands that they had taken in the north have been lost. 
And so here we are after 15 weeks. We're on day 110 or 11, I think, today. Um, all, all the north parts have been lost, but the gains have been down in the south here. Now, the importance of this area is that this is where all the wealth is. This is where the main ports are for Ukraine. So by seizing this land bridge from the existing, let me just, uh, no, um, I thought I got, well, that's the map here, sorry. The, uh, this map shows the existing areas before the 2000 invasion that Russia had held. So part of Donetsk and part of Hansk. Now what he's doing is enlarging that holding, as you can see on this uh, map on the right-hand side, greatly enlarging the area there, as well as sweeping down um, to Crimea. So he's established, what, this was his main aim, to establish a land bridge which secured a passageway to Crimea. Crimea isn't an island, it's an isthmus, uh, it has a little connecting uh, link to the mainland. And on day one, the Russian troops from Crimea swept up northwards, seized uh, land to the north, and gradually they have been uh, enlarging it. Uh, and one of the main reasons for this is not only so that she can get her troops uh, easily there, but the water source to Crimea uh, comes from uh, a lake which is now under Russian control, but was under Ukrainian control. When 2014, Russia took Crimea, the Ukrainians dammed off the supply of water so that Crimea was cut off from its water supply and has suffered greatly because it was a very fertile uh, crop growing area, but without the water, that's not been possible. So what he has done is to restore that water supply and uh, made this land bridge, has cut off Ukraine from uh, access to the Sea of Arof, which is underneath Metropol and Maripol. Uh, so the only port that Ukraine now has is Odessa in the west, and she can't use that because of all the uh, mines in the Black Sea. So in a stroke, Russia has got control of, of the main uh, manufacturing area because the Donibas area is where the huge coal fields are. And so because of the coal there, uh, manufacturing uh, has taken place. And the supplies of um, iron ore, they haven't yet managed to get to that, that region, but just to the north of where they've taken lies the, the main cities where the uh, iron ore is. So their next stage is to push northwards uh, to take control of that. So they've got control of the coal, are hoping to get control of the steel, They've got control of the ports, 
And of course, the Ukrainians have built up the ports, huge storage vessels to contain all the wheat that they were exporting, which was a, a year round trade. And so Russia has been plundering those silos, holding the grain and allegedly selling it uh, on the world markets. The other great thing that he has uh, gained is control of the gas reserves in the sea, the maritime gas reserves. Let me just see. Uh, I'm just floundering a bit to know what, what on the next slide is. Um, in the Arov Sea and in the Black Sea are vast supplies of gas. Now, that was under Ukrainian control when Russia took Crimea because uh, of the fact that uh, when you own land by the sea, you also own up to 200 kilometers. Excuse me. Uh, 200 kilometers out to sea. So at a stroke when you took took Crimea, um, she gained about 60% of the uh, gas supplies at sea, and now taking uh, what she has done, uh, she has control over virtually all of it. And it is a very rich supply, there's an abundant supply of gas in, in the area around Crimea. So how's it all going to end? Well, Russia has actually been doing quite well out of it. Uh, to begin with, the exchange rate absolutely plummeted. You can see there on the graph how it uh, suddenly bottoms right down. It loses a tremendous lot of value. But since then, it's been steadily climbing. In fact, if I just put the five-year chart on, you can see it's not only higher than it was just before the war, but it's at the same kind of height as five years ago. So the rush to ruble has benefited because of the high prices for gas and oil uh, and the money in spite of nations trying to cut their supplies, uh, there's still vast sums of money going into the coffers of Russia. So that has meant that the ruble is strong. She can't spend it on a lot of things because of the sanctions, but uh, that's another thing. I'll just give it to you. I don't know, I've killed it off, I've killed it off. Sorry about that. Um, so if we think of the costs of what Putin has done, of the 42 million population of Ukraine before the invasion, 7 million have been displaced internally and 7 million have fled the country are refugees. So a third of the population has fled and that's had a, a big effect on the economy. And it is the biggest known movement of peoples within such a short time frame. Up to 30,000 have been killed, many, many more have been injured, and rebuilding costs are put at one trillion, an almost impossible sum of money 
uh, to foresee Ukraine being able to pull together. And the GDP is expected to fall by 45% this year. So Ukraine has been absolutely hammered. Russia's policy is to obliterate the towns, cities, make it so that Ukraine is no longer a viable country. And just this last Thursday, Putin hints of more invasions as you cannot put fence around Russia. And he compares himself to Peter the Great, who did a lot of uh, expansion of the empire. So let's just go back to that division um, because it is very important. We know the image of Daniel chapter two stands on its two feet, an Eastern foot based in Rome and a Western foot based in Constantinople. At the moment, Constantinople is under Turkish control and the Muslim control, but we know that part of the invasion, as Daniel chapter uh, 11 tells us, is the retaking of Turkey so that it comes back under uh, the Russian control so that the image, as it were, can stand on its two feet. So that being the case, if I just transfer that division line from the old map to now new map, we can see that countries like Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, Greece, Turkey, Cyprus, um, which are uh, many of them in the EU, have to be broken away. Now, there could well be a, a time of great um, financial crisis, which causes many of the countries of the EU to have to uh, break away. Uh, and where they're going to go? Well, Russia will be welcoming them with open arms. Uh, and we know that somehow the situation has got to change so that the Eastern leg can all come together as well as the Western leg. So where we need to turn to, if we just go to Daniel chapter eight, which is the chapter which tells us of the, let me just move that and bring the Bible across. Daniel chapter eight describes the situation of the Eastern Roman Empire. Chapter seven has described the Western Roman Empire with its little horn and speaking blasphemy, the papal power. But when we come to chapter eight, it's talking about the little horn of the goat, which uh, was Rome springing out of the um, Greek empire and forming eventually the Byzantine empire with Constantinople as its center when Constantine moved his headquarters to Constantinople. And this is the history uh, of the military side of Rome. Uh, and when we come to the end of the chapter, verse 23, it talks about the latter time of the little horn of the goat kingdom. Uh, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and holy people, the Jewish people. He's going to come against Israel, as we know, to destroy Israel as a nation. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper 
deceit, treachery, to prosper in his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart. He's going to be a proud man. And by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And interestingly, that word broken is the word that is used of grain being crushed on the threshing floor. And of course, it, it, we know that he's going to be broken without hand, human hand. It's going to be by divine power, by Christ and the saints at the Battle of Armageddon, that he perceives in the valley for threshing. So interesting linkage there. So this power, this king is not an individual person. It gets handed on in time, but it is the leader of this power. And he comes to his end, but it's by peace he's going to destroy many. Well, that's the very opposite of what we see Putin doing at the moment. So there's craft and peace. We see plenty of craftiness, plenty of deceit. You know how uh, Putin spent a lot of time deceiving people when he moved his forces all around Ukraine for, since uh, the autumn of last year. Um, but saying these are just exercises, these are just exercises, there's nothing in it. And then on February the 24th, invaded. So what we've got to look at is the latter day forming of the two feet. Uh, the Western leg, the Holy Roman Empire, came to an end in end of World War I, 1918, with the Habsburg monarch Charles I. Uh, and then was a great change in Europe. Democracy was introduced, and eventually the Western foot started to form. But we know it's a mixture of iron and clay. So iron speaks of uh, autocracy, uh, very much the church, uh, and clay speaks of people's democracy. And we have this strange alliance which in Europe hasn't come to the fore yet, but I believe very shortly, and this is probably part of the outcome from the Ukrainian crisis, will be this integration of church and state in uh, the West, as we see it in the East. But we see the growing power that the Pope has, and uh, we shall just enlarge this in a moment. But if we look on the other side, again, the Eastern leg came to an end at the same time, 1918 with the murder of Tsar Nicholas II. And again, uh, democracy, communism, uh, people power. Uh, and that's really when communism was overthrown, then very much we had a rebirth of the foot in the East when church and state very much came together that was Putin's desire to bring the church on board, and the church was very eager to come on board and to gather church and state work, as we can see from what's happening in Ukraine. And Putin himself models himself on Tsar Peter the Great. And Catherine is his other model. Both those greatly extended the Russian Empire in their day. And that's what Putin is wanting to do. Uh, and very interestingly, all these things are happening at the time when Israel, 1948, comes into a state. Um, and so because we have Israel back in the land, we can then roll forward 
with the final development of Nebuchadnezzar's image, which has never been completely formed, but is now being formed before our eyes in order that it can stand up to come against uh, Israel. So we have to ask the question, have we misunderstood prophecy? Because we've always seen Russia and Europe, we said from prophecy, have to work together. But at the moment, we see Europe is against Russia, not working with her. And we've seen Russia as a strong power, Ezekiel 38, but it seems to be weak. And we see Britain seems to be taking a leading role in supporting Ukraine with uh, weaponry, with intelligence, leading Europe and America uh, in rebuilding uh, Ukraine. Uh, and yet we've seen Britain's role as outside Europe uh, building herself up around the world. So what we've got to remember, this isn't the time then, this isn't the Battle of Armageddon. This is a preparation, a, a change of scenery, adjustment to the scenery in order to get the final situation of the nations coming against Israel. Uh, and what we always have to bear in mind that the Lord Jesus comes back, I believe there's a 10 year span between the return of the master to the household to the battle of Armageddon. Sometime before that, I don't know, a year maybe, and before that Russia and Europe and the Gogan forces have invaded Israel. So the important thing as far as we're concerned is that we can be called away at any time. We can see that still things have to happen, but that can all take place while we're taken away uh, to stand before our Lord and judge at Sinai. So what we see is that we're not there in the final picture. Uh, Sorry, let's go back there. Um, Europe only appears to be working against Russia, as we shall see in a moment. Germany and France very much are dragging their feet. Uh, and Russia is supposed to be a great military power, yet appears weak. Uh, and yes, and part of that was because Putin agreed with the Chinese leader that he would postpone his invasion until after the uh, Chinese Olympics, which was a fatal mistake because by that time the ground had softened uh, and they got bogged down in the mud. If he had done it when he had planned, he would have been far more successful. But as I say, things are changing uh, and we're not there for the final picture. And so the, the two important words are craft and deceit, which we get from Daniel chapter eight. And I think there's going to be a big push for peace, uh, encouraged by the Pope and the Patriarch of Moscow, Kirill. There has to be some accommodation made to Russia's plans. And if Russia has left Ukraine in a state where it's no good to anybody, uh, Russia, uh, will be the only person who will be willing to take on the devastated economy of Russia. Europe won't want to do that, but some agreement will be made uh, and a period of peace brought in 
whereby Europe has her access to the wealth and the investments that she has in Russia and access to the uh, energy that she needs for her industry in return for some accommodation um, in the division of Europe uh, and Putin being able to expand his empire. We'll just have to see. But I, I believe there is going to be a time of peace, just as we see a time of peace rapidly taking place in the Middle East among those nations which are going to be on the side of Israel. So I believe we've got to see a similar time of peace among those nations which are going to be Israel's enemies. Uh, and interposed upon all that are going to be God's continual judgments. We've had an economic crisis, we've had COVID, we look as if we're going to have another uh, financial crisis. Various things are going to come along which are going to be God's judgments upon the world. And in the mercy of God, the saints are going to be taken out of that situation so they don't uh, see it. So what is Europe's true position? Well, these are some recent headlines this month. Moscow must not be humiliated, says Macron. And the other one is, why has Germany been so slow to deliver weapons? Um, Scholz has made all sorts of promises, but hasn't delivered on them. Uh, as that second one says, Germany has not sent promised large arms to Ukraine. And the other thing we have to take into account is the great efforts which uh, Russia is making using its uh, false uh, media reports, that it's using every effort to make the West turn away from helping Ukraine and look sympathetically towards Russia and her aims. Uh, uh, um, that is something which perhaps we don't experience in this country, but I think on the continent, that's where they're spending a lot of money, the Russians, in order to uh, change public viewpoint. Now we know who directs the uh, image. It's the Babylonian head, Babylon of old is long gone, but we have today Babylon the Great of Revelation chapter 17, 18, 19, uh, with its papal eyes and mouth. And this is going to be the power that brings together Europe and all the countries, part of this confederacy, gets the two legs working and moving to come against Israel. So I expect very much that any change is going to be brought about by the um, papacy. Now, the other effect of what's been happening in Ukraine has been to change Germany's viewpoint. She has always been very hesitant since World War II about rearming, uh, but now she has changed the viewpoint. And in March the 23rd, there was a, a big EU meeting where they determined that they were going to build uh, a European army. They've been talking about it for a long time, but this has given them their impetus to move forward with integrating the militaries of the countries. Germany has promised to put a lot of money in, and Germany has promised to be the leadership of it. Uh, and so, uh, again, we can see 
this unintended consequence, as it were, of the Ukrainian invasion has been to push Europe together to have a strong army. Because if we've got to have a, a reconstruction of the old Holy Roman Empire, we've got to have a Europe that can stand on its own feet, can't be dependent on uh, America and NATO, it's got to have its own forces, but working in cooperation with the other leg, uh, that of Russia. So it's fascinating, last uh, Friday was it, um, when the European Commission President, von Leyen, met with the Pope at the Vatican to discuss measures to stop the Ukraine war and alleviate global food crisis. So that's what they discussed for quite a long time. It was quite a long meeting. And as well as discussing that, they discussed the conclusions of the Confederate Conference on the Future of Europe. That's been a conference to decide how is Europe going to go forward post-Brexit. And the papacy wants to be deeply involved with that. And Europe realizes that the only power that is capable of pulling the 27 states together is the Pope. They all respect him. Uh, and, and so this is what they were discussing. So how interesting, brothers and sisters, you know, here is the power, I think, that will bring this warfare to an end, change it to a period of peace instead of war, but at the same time, build up Europe to be a strong power with the Pope working there. Now, this is uh, a headline from last year, why a peace pope could get behind a Europe preparing for war. So this was September the 23rd. Russia had been busy moving forces all the way around Ukraine. It's been going on for months. And John Allen is the editor of this Roman Catholic paper, Crooks. And what he had to say was fascinating. The takeaway is in the next few months may be decisive in terms of whether Europe can develop a political infrastructure capable of undergirding von der Leyen's desire for an enhanced military capacity. In that effort, the Catholic Church across Europe and especially the Vatican could play a decisive role. For decades, the Vatican has wanted a more independent, assertive Europe, one that can provide a genuine global counterweight to both the United States and Russia and China. Granted the idea of a more robust military may not exactly be the Vatican's preferred method, especially under a peace pope such as Francis, but the objective is nevertheless a long-standing Vatican obsession. One great hallmark of Vatican diplomacy over the centuries, however, has been precisely its realism. As they survey the landscape, Francis and his advisors could just decide this is a moment in which the best has to be put on hold in order to achieve the good. So here is a Pope, uh, here is a, a Catholic writer who has a deep insight into the workings of the Vatican, saying maybe the Pope is prepared to make this leap and bring about the dream that the Catholic Church has had for centuries since the ending of the Holy Roman Empire anyway, 
uh, of having a Europe with Pope and an emperor for a ruler um, reigning over uh, Europe. So fascinating times, brothers and sisters. The next few months are going to be very interesting. So I see time has gone, so just very rapidly. Um, Israel and the Abraham Accords. Uh, we saw the prophecy today how at long last these Abrahamic Accords uh, were beginning to show much progress. And we're nearly going to be uh, shortly two years celebration of that. Uh, and it's not only just the nations that signed up to it, but Jordan and Egypt have been invigorated by the changed attitude and have strengthened their ties very much with Israel. What was a cold peace now has become a very real and lively peace. So a historic milestone was on April the 1st when Israel and the UAE signed a free trade agreement. This is the first free trade agreement that Israel has made with an Arab state uh, and would have been impossible a few years ago, but how the situation has changed. Uh, and just uh, last week was this headline that the opportunities are immense from this free trade agreement. The UAE wants Israeli technology. They're prepared to invest a lot of money in the uh, companies there uh, and uh, vice versa. Israel needs the things that UAE have. It, it, it's a wonderful partnership between the two. This meeting on the uh, 23rd of March was a meeting between the Egyptian president, uh, the Israeli um, prime minister, and the UAE um, crown prince. So this took place in Egypt. There were no riots. Normally, when Israel has met with Egypt, they've had to do it secretly. This was done out in the open. So that marked a big step. And Egypt is now working very hard with Israel in order to increase gas supplies and things like that. And then a few days later, the Israeli, um, oh, what's the, not the president, um, yeah, the president, not promise, the president, Herzog, went to Jordan with full military honours. That's the first time that's ever happened. Again, in the past, meetings between Israel and Jordan have had to be done in secret. Things are changing. And then uh, almost at the same time, there was a meeting in Israel between the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Egypt, US and Israel. And that took place at uh, Ben-Gurion's old home in the Negev. And so again, this was the first time that these Arab leaders had come openly to a meeting in Israel. And they said, we're going to have regular meetings because there's a lot to discuss, especially Iran. It's one of the strongest signs yet that the country is beginning to reap the dividends and normalization deals, confirming a profound realignment of Middle Eastern powers. And then just last week, was this announcement that going through the Jewish, very through the US Congress is a bill to bring together uh, the countries of the Gulf Cooperation Council 
uh, Iraq, Jordan, Israel, and Egypt into a defense cooperation unit, specifically against Iran. Now that is absolutely amazing because that's exactly what we, we have sensed from scripture has got to happen. Uh, this cooperation between Israel, merchants of Tarshish and Deben and Sheba and the region there working together. So again, if this comes off, that will be a remarkable step forward. So exciting things are happening, brothers and sisters. And as far as Britain is concerned, she's very deeply involved in Israel. Uh, they're about to begin formal negotiations to do a stronger uh, trade agreement with Israel. They just rolled over the existing one that they had when Britain was part of the EU. They now want to strengthen that. Again, a lot of Israeli companies are now coming to Britain instead of America to grow. A lot of money is flowing from Britain into Israel, Israel into Britain. It is quite a remarkable change. Uh, and then we have this added bonus that with all the gas that Israel has, um, which has been supplying to Egypt, and the EU is now saying, because we want to wean ourselves off Russian gas, we'll be quite interested in buying gas, uh, Israeli gas, uh, sent down to be liquid, made liquid in Egypt and then shipped across to the EU. So again, peace and prosperity to the region it is a wonderful thing. And then just finally, um, we've had the celebrations of the Queen's 70th uh, anniversary on the throne. We know how that links with Isaiah chapter 23, that after 70 years of the years of one king, then the latter-day Tarshish power would come to life, as it were, and become a trading power uh, with all countries of the world uh, upon the face of the earth. Uh, and that's exactly what we're seeing. And um, we're seeing the final battles yesterday, uh, we just uh, put before Parliament this bill that would allow Britain to break up the um, protocol, which looks after Northern Ireland because it's unworkable uh, and the EU is not cooperating with making it workable. And so Britain has been forced to say, right, we've got to put legislation so we can change it so that it does work. Uh, and today, the Brussels is saying, well, we're going to sue you if you try to change it. So we can see this is the last throws of Britain throwing off the final cords that binds her through this protocol with uh, the EU. So lots of things are happening, brothers and sisters, and we're seeing a, a great change. We're seeing the world changing into two camps, the goat nations and the sheep nations, those for Israel, those against Israel. And so we have countries who are for Israel, um, and uh, India is for Israel, and little tiny Bhutan over there. And we have uh, Britain, of course, very much, and off the map, American and Australia and New Zealand, uh, part of these countries who are for Israel. And then chief of those against them are Iran and Turkey. Uh, we know that Europe is very much uh, anti-Israel. Um, just uh, today was an announcement that she's going to start um, 
putting money into the um, Palestinian Authority, which he had suspended because they wanted the Palestinians not to use the money to pay for terrorist organizations' families uh, and to revise their textbooks. Uh, and there was some one other condition. Um, but the EU have decided, well, we're going to forget those conditions. We're going back to pouring money in. So we can sense just how anti-Israel the EU is. And of course, Russia and these other uh, states are going to be dragged into this confederation uh, against Israel. And of course, Libya too is part of that confederation against so what we're seeing is the division of the world into these two camps, brothers and sisters. And so as far as we're concerned, uh, the Lord Jesus is at the door. He can come at any time. And so we must be watching and waiting, recognising that we're not part of this world. We have a hope in the future world to come of being with the Lord Jesus to educate the world in the truths of God. And so... You know, there are helps, and the milestones, uh, reviews, Bible magazine I've just completed today. I've just got to send it off the next instalment for the next uh, issue of the Bible magazine. And uh, every week, about three, four times a week, uh, the snippets, which are just interesting things that I glean. So, yes, I've got the um, address correct on there, on that milestonesuk.org to go on that mailing list. So thank you for your patience and uh, I hope you found it interesting. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen